The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. If you weren't with us last week, we uh, began a two-part sermon on Providence. Uh, The title was Providence. And then there's a subtitle, How God is Working in Your Life, Whether You Realize It or Not. If you'd like a handout, is that what you got there, Bob? Yeah, just raise your hand, and this is a handout of the sermon. If you need one, just raise your hand. Bob will give that to you. Providence, how God is working in your life, whether you realize it or not. Last week, we laid the foundation. We gave a definition of what providence is because, surprisingly, a lot of Christians don't know the meaning of providence. They kind of have an idea, but quite, not quite sure. Even theologians, actually, uh, what times will have different perspectives on it. But we can still come up with a very basic definition of providence, and that's what we wanted to talk about. I just thought it's in such an important doctrine yet so rarely talked about, and it is evident and ongoing always in your life and in my life on every page of the Bible, so we should probably know what it is, what providence is. Understanding providence, believing in it, will also bolster your faith. That's why it's so practical and relevant. So we're going to continue. Notice I have, should be 16 points um, on providence, 16. We'll see how far we get today. There's so much to say. It's quite a challenge. You can't do justice to talking about providence in 40. Is it okay if I go to about 1.30 today? Is that okay? Some of you. No, I'm just kidding. Putting that spiritual uh, guilt on you, that's not fair. Yeah, we'll see how far we get. I think we can get there after laying the foundation last week. And so I've been preaching here going on 14 years at GBF, Grace Bible Fellowship, and when you've preached that long at the same place, over time, patterns surface in terms of feedback you get from your sermons. Early on, you kind of try to figure out, wait, whoa, what's with this feedback or how do I deal with this? But over time, after 14 years, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I know where this goes uh, on certain sermons. There are actually some sermons I preach where I get zero feedback. Zero. None. Nada. That is awkward and weird. Uh, it makes me uncomfortable. Whoa, with a Ooh, I wonder how that went. I'm afraid to ask anybody. Then there are sermons that get a reaction because maybe it's a controversial topic, like when I was going through Corinthians on speaking in tongues, and there's a lot of questions and debate, and et cetera. So, and those, you know, prompt questions. And then there are... Um, but the normal feedback from sermons, at least that I preach, are just, just a few comments oh thank you for the sermon thank you for the word and that's usually the same people say it every week thank you for the word of god they they are sincere they love the word of god so appreciate that but then there are topics that where comments come out of the woodwork for whatever reason uh either people are intrigued or they're encouraged well that happened this week after the sermon on providence from emails that i got phone calls and personal conversation i was like whoa i hit a nerve I, i think i hit a good nerve though for the most part, a lot of questions, but very positive in the feedback, discussion, analysis. Uh, it was like, praise God, this was a topic we needed to talk about. We needed to hear from God's word about. So we'll continue that as we try to complete that today. So just by way of review, we gave a definition. We're going to operate on that definition for the rest of today's sermon. So last week we defined providence in a couple different ways. One was Providence is God's ongoing preservation, provision, and direction for all creation 
through secondary causes for his ultimate purposes. Uh, the second part of that definition was God's activity on behalf of creation through natural or indirect causes, as opposed to God's activity through direct miraculous intervention. Another subpoint that actually we need to add on there is God's provision, providence. What word is in providence? Well, the word provide. That really gets to the issue of what providence is, provide. God's working continually really on behalf of his people for his glory but for his people that's what providence is a lot of definitions in the theological dictionaries have the word care god's care for his creation god's care for his people uh, a simple definition of providence my own is kind of providence is when god moves heaven and earth to care for his people that's just as legit as any other definition i read out of the textbooks when God moves heaven and earth for the care of his people, and he does it through normal causes, the circumstances of life, he doesn't do it through miracles. And then I made a distinction last week that God operates and works in this world and in our lives in two primary ways. He does, God works through providence and he works through miracles as we look at biblical history. Two ways, through providence and miracles. And a miracle is a direct intervention by God, the creator, where he bypasses natural laws to accomplish an instantaneous result. Miracles, we call them. And that we found that miracles in the Bible are rare. Miracles have not been God's normal way of operating in the last 2,000 years of the church through individual miraculous events like he did in the life of Christ, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead, and the giftedness that the apostles had. They had the gift of miracles. That has not been God's norm of how he's been operating for the last 2,000 years. He hasn't been operating primarily through these direct miracles that defy natural law. He's been operating through providence. And that's he, God is continually working kind of behind the scenes, invisibly, secretly, but he's working through the normal circumstances of life, secondary causes. That was our definition. And God, when he created everything in the beginning, the first six days, within those six days, God put everything in an order the way he wanted it to operate. He put all these natural laws into place by which he would continue to use those to run world history. And every once in a while, he has the prerogative to override those by doing a direct miracle when it's fitting for him to accomplish his will. So God operates through providence, the normal circumstances of life that usually we can't see or interpret, and through direct miracles. So one question that is asked by critics and skeptics, but also as Christians that, well, I read the Bible and I see these miracles, but how come I haven't seen a miracle in my life? Well, just to say, well, that's normal. You shouldn't really expect a miraculous event the way we see in Scripture, and there are many reasons for that. That doesn't mean God isn't working. God is working. So I need to distinguish between when I say that God isn't working through a miracle when he's working through providence, that doesn't mean that God isn't working supernaturally because he is. God is supernatural. He's always working supernaturally. And even when he's working through providence, behind the scenes, through natural law, he is working supernaturally. Because he's got all these variables in all of creation that he is balancing and orchestrating and the master making sure that everything aligns perfectly to accomplish his will. That takes supernatural ability. So God works supernaturally through providence and through direct miracles. So we needed to refine our definition 
a little bit. So when we get to provident number four, providence is working through natural means and secondary causes. That means that God is working through everything in creation to accomplish his will. Uh, normally, day-to-day circumstances, he's, God is working through uh, the earth spinning. He put the, the earth you know, in orbit at the very beginning. He put it at a certain tilt and a certain speed and a certain velocity and hasn't deviated since then. And that causes stuff to happen. That's providence, and it's all in keeping with his will. So the earth spinning, time ticking, all these norms that God put in place at the very beginning of creation that have remained constant since then, the weather, gravity, animals roaming, replenishing, and behaving the way that they do, that's all a part of the providence that affects the world. Uh, And at the same time, it's a cursed earth, so that plays into how the earth operates. Why it explains why we have natural disasters and uh, earthquakes. Why do we have earthquakes? And then people look for some mystical spiritual reason. Why was there a mirror, uh, an earthquake here? Well, probably because the plates under the earth uh, were at a certain angle and rubbed against each other at a certain amount of velocity, and boom, that's what happened. That's typical. That's how God is primarily operating. Sometimes God does miraculous earthquakes that defy the laws of nature. We see that in Scripture. But usually an earthquake is according to God's natural law and how things operate. Uh, And God is also working providentially, supernaturally providentially, apart from miracles on a regular basis through us, through our actions that we make, through the decisions that we make. That's how God operates, through the actions and choices of people, including, get this, our prayers. God works providentially through our prayers. I would say a prayer is not a miracle, but a prayer that is prayed and God responds to and moves is a supernatural act on his part because God commands us to pray. Prayer is one of those laws that he set in place by which he chose to operate with us and accomplish many things in his will. So providential. Prayer. Does prayer work? Absolutely. Does God respond to prayer? Absolutely. Have you ever gone to a busy parking lot and... Can't find a parking space. Dear God, open up a parking space and boom, a a parking space opens up. Was that a miracle? No. Was that an answer to prayer? I have no idea. All I know is you said a prayer and then a parking space opened up. Well, what about when you pray for a parking space and a parking space doesn't open up? How do you explain that? Oh, God's mad at me. Oh, I must have sinned this morning. So then you're. Theology is going real wonky, so be careful. When we try to interpret what God is doing like that, I'm not discouraging you to pray. The Bible says pray in all things, but your prayer has to be in keeping with God's will. But the point being is that God works through providence in keeping with our actions, choices, which includes our prayers and our lack of prayers. Providentially, God works through our obedience to accomplish his will and our disobedience. God works through our obedience and our disobedience to accomplish his will providentially for example god is going to save people we know that and he saves them through the proclamation of the gospel and i know as a christian it is my obligation to share the gospel and if i choose to disobey and not share the gospel you know what god's going to get the word out despite me go around me and go to somebody else who's going to be obedient to preach the gospel and he's going to use the normal means to do it natural means of getting the gospel out through a human vehicle and my disobedience plays into that in the divine scheme of things so that God's will might be accomplished. This is providence. So let's go on to the next point. 
And we'll move through pretty quickly, five through the end, and get some practical application. Number five, we left off from last week. Providence is the normal or usual way God works in the world. So in other words, God isn't operating routinely, regularly through these supernatural miracles, the equivalent of which we see in the days of the Bible, or like in the days of Moses. Moses lived to be 120 years old. There was a very small window of time in his life where he was able to do miracles. That was not the norm even for Moses. You got the 10 plagues, absolutely amazing, parting of the Red Sea, very, very rare. That was not normal. So God operating invisibly behind the scenes in ways we can't even see. Where from our perspective, wow, nothing's why is this happening? Nothing's happening. Nothing's going on when no, actually God is working supernaturally behind the scenes through his providence, taking all things and all variables in life into consideration for our good, the good of his people, our care, our provision, our preservation, and ultimately all for his glory. That's how God works. Number five, providence is the normal way God works in the world. Contrast that with Matthew 12, 39, where some people got to be chasing Jesus around because they saw him do miracles, and that's all they wanted was a miracle. Oh, there's the miracle, man. I want a miracle. Give me a miracle, Jesus. I want to see a miracle. Prove it. Uh, give us a miracle. That's what his critics would say. They saw all kinds of miracles, and they still insisted, I want to see more, more miracles. Give us more free food. As they were complaining after he gave them bread and fish they were following him because they wanted free food he rebuked them for it so everywhere he went he did miracles even raised people from the dead and they became demanding and expectant and presumptuous as a result and he had to, uh, he had to rebuke the masses and he did in matthew twelve thirty nine, he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign evil people seek after miracles chase after miracles what a rebuke. Jesus wasn't against miracles. He did miracles. Jesus did miracles of healing because he had compassion on people. But when they had the wrong perspective, the wrong motive, the wrong expectation, the sign was supposed to be point, pointing to something. The sign of the miracle was supposed to be pointing to Jesus Christ as the God-man, as the Messiah. It was to affirm his work, his words, who he was. And if you accepted his miracle and disregarded him as a person, him as the messenger, then you missed the point of the miracle. That's what he's talking about. And then these people just got used to chasing miracles around, looking for a miracle under every rock and behind every tree. And he rebuked them for it and said, don't be like that. Don't do that. This is very pertinent and relevant for us. We're going to see this a little later. We are not called by God to be running after miracles and looking for miracles. And I got a miracle for you. Those are good selling books, by the way. Find your miracle. Three ways to get your miracle. How to pray for your miracle. Expect a miracle. The very con the antithesis of what Jesus said. Well, you know what? It's evil and adulterous people who seek after miracles. Wow. It's God's prerogative when he wants to do a miracle. Not our expectation. Number six, God's providence comes from his infinite power and his infinite knowledge. Here's a verse. This is probably the best verse that would summarize the theology of providence. Ephesians 1.11 in that passage, just here's half of the, the verse, but it speaks and informs what providence is really about. It says, God works all things. God works, present tense. I think it's from the word energeo or energy. And it's, it's present tense. It's continually and ongoing. God is continually 
forevermore in an ongoing fashion, working with his power, his energy, his will. He works all things. So that talks about everything under the sun, everything in life, everything in your personal life, corporate society, the inanimate world, all of creation. That's the all things. It is universal. It is comprehensive. God works all things after the counsel of his will. His will means what he wants, what he desires, his goal. And it will be accomplished. Imagine that. God works all things that are going on in creation after the counsel of or in accordance with what he desires and wants to get accomplished. All things. That is the greatest verse on providence right there. So you can look at everything going on in your life and believe and trust that, well, you know what? God is working everything in my life, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's disappointing, frustrating, sad, delightful. It doesn't matter. God is working everything in my life in accordance with his divine plan. Most of which I can't even see, I can't even discern. We believe this by faith. God works all things after the counsel of his will, what he wants. Ephesians 1.11. It is guaranteed. This gives purpose and meaning to life. But he does, how can God possibly do this with all these variables? Because say I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, and I'm praying one thing and you're praying for another thing. Say I'm praying for my basketball team to win in the Super Bowl, or no, a football team to win in the Super Bowl, and you're praying for your football team to win in the Super Bowl, and we're both Christians, and we both love Jesus, and we're both obedient, we're both walking in the Spirit, we're both praying to God the Father, dear God, help Tom Brady win. And then the other one's saying the opposite. Dear God, help Tom Brady lose. In Jesus' name. They both said in Jesus' name. Uh-oh. What is God to do? Well, we don't know, actually. We don't know what God's going to do. We don't even know how that kind of a prayer affects God, if it does at all. But that's just one example of all these variables, because some of the things that we desire that we think are good are in conflict with another Christian who has a desire that they think is just as good and in keeping with God's will. And God, he has to fix that. And he does. The only way he can do that is he's infinite in his knowledge. He knows what's best. And he's also infinite in his power, meaning he can carry it through. So the doctrine of providence is contingent or dependent upon God's omniscience that he knows absolutely everything and that he's powerful enough to carry it through. And also the very character of God that he is good. He is loving. He is caring because you could have theoretically an all powerful, all knowing God who's not a good God. He's a mean God, but that's not the God of the Bible. God works his providence for our good. He cares for us. He wants to accomplish that purpose. So God's providence comes from his in, uh, just a couple of verses on that. Matthew 6, 6, the father knows what we need before we even ask, Matthew 6, 6. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 4. God knows everything about us even before uh, anything happens to us. That's complete omniscience. Then God is all-powerful, Colossians 1, 16. He's omniscient and all-powerful. He can do anything consistent with his will and his character. Colossians 1, 16 says that in him, this is in Jesus Christ, who is God, in Christ all things Hold together. That is omnipotent, almighty power. And it also describes God's providential work. Top of your notes there, Jesus said, my father is working still and I am working. We both are. One of the things they're continually doing as far as their work, it's not creation, it's sustaining all things. Colossians 1.16. Jesus Christ, in him all things hold together. 
Jesus is sustaining everything in the universe. Uh, the reason that the earth is still spinning is Jesus is sustaining it. The reason the earth is orbiting and all those other planets is because Jesus is making that happen. The reason that you take your next breath is Jesus granted that to you and sustains your life. The reason that atoms have a nucleus and electrons and protons and neutrons apparently moving around and floating around and there's nothing there and how do they sustain and stay that way and what keeps them intact with all of that power it is the lord jesus christ who does his ongoing sustaining omniscient power in christ all things hold together this is how providence is possible number seven god's work of providence is all-inclusive i've hinted at this already what does that mean well it includes everybody it is Primarily, I think, intended for two things, the care of God's people, because several scriptures say that, and also for God's glory, because that's the ultimate good. But it also God's providence, God's provision, God's preservation, God's protection, God's care isn't just for unbelievers. Aren't you glad about that? I am. I am so thankful for that because I think about I wasn't a believer for 19 years. <laughs> I am so God, glad that God was caring for me. For those 19 years, I wasn't a Christian. He was providing for me and doing good for me and creating a path for me to my benefit, my good, my blessing, his glory, the good of others. Matthew 5, 45. He makes his son. This is Jesus talking, talking about God, the father. God makes his son. So the son that God created, it's not just for believers. It's for everybody. God makes his son rise on the evil and the good. That's a blessing. That's God's providence. That's care for God's people. And not just people, for animals, for plants, for all of creation. He makes his son rise. And see, and that's a, that's a normal daily routine. We don't even think about the sun going across the sky, rising, setting, going around, orbiting, giving heat, giving life, preserving a ho-hum Yet a supernatural undertaking on God's part is he continues to purposefully do that and provide that for us, for our good, as he cares for it. That is providence. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. That was from a verse earlier there in Job 28 and uh, also in the book of Ecclesiastes. There are verses that talk about how God established in the natural world these cycles of weather weather is cyclical and these patterns of rain and clouds get filled up they rain down uh they create seas and bodies of water and then they get dried up sucked up in the atmosphere clouds again then they rain down this has been going on for six thousand years the weather that's one of those laws that god has set into play and part of that is to bless all of creation as a result to give them water this is providence god's goodness number eight God's work through providence does not nullify man's freedom or responsibility or accountability. So God is working. He's the one that's doing it. It's his initiative. But that doesn't mean we're robots. It doesn't undermine our choices and our responsibility. A couple of verses for this that we retain our we have freedom. We have the ability to choose. We are short sighted. We're finite, we're fallen, but we still have the ability to choose. We're still accountable for our choices. Our choices make real impact. Our actions really influence the world and history. Nevertheless, God is in charge through providence. He's using our choices, our actions in his divine and master plan somehow, supernaturally, amazingly. 
yet we're still responsible. They go together. God's providence, God's supernatural activity, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, human freedom, human accountability. The actions of humans affecting reality, they go together. Matthew twelve thirty six. Jesus said, every human being is going to be accountable for every word they speak someday. Does that scare you? Uh, it should. It scares me. Boy, I better start confessing all my sins. Yeah, you better. I better. That's why Jesus died. His blood can cover all those horrible things we've said. It's the only thing that can cover and swallow up those things we've said. But the point is, is that despite God's providence and he's sovereignly in control and everything happens according to his perfect will, at the same time, we are responsible and we're going to be accountable for every word that we spoke, Matthew twelve 36. We're also going to be accountable, accountable for every action and every deed we do. That is 2 Corinthians 5.10. That is Romans chapter 2, verse 6. It's also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be judged for every deed and act we do. Now, if you're a Christian, all of your dirty deeds and sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you will be punished in accordance with those dirty deeds. So there's a difference of how God judges our words and our deeds. But the point is, is that we still have a human freedom and responsibility before God in light of his sovereign providence. Number nine. Providence is the outworking of his sovereignty. Sovereignty, another big theological word. What is sovereignty? Well, in the word sovereignty is the word reign, R-E-I-G-N, reign. That's a good definition of God's sovereignty. He reigns as king. What does the king do? He does whatever he wants. He's all-powerful. That's sovereignty. So when we say that God is sovereign, it means he's the king. He does whatever he pleases. He can do it because he's all-powerful and omniscient. And he does do it. He does all things according to his will, his power. And we know, and we can never get enough of Romans 8.28, so I want to read it. I left you with Romans 8.28 last week. we got to do it again. We could have a Bible study every week on Romans 8.28. I wouldn't complain. Romans 8.28, God says, And we know, we Christians know for a fact, certitude, not maybe, we know that God causes all things to work together for good man it just rests in that phrase god causes all things to work together for good and again that includes the bad things in life in your life the disappointing things the frustrating things the unjust things god causes all things to work together for good well for who for everybody no to those who love god so god has this special promise to believers in terms of working every detail out in their life. Maybe you're frustrated. You flunked out of college like I almost did. Well, God will work that together for good if you know him and love him. Well, maybe you got fired from your job or you lost a job or lost a lot of money. Well, if you know Jesus and you believe in him, he's going to eventually work that out at some point together for, for your good. Maybe not now. Maybe you don't even know when, but it's a promise. He's going to do it. Maybe you uh, got the cold shoulder from somebody you had a crush on or you broke up with somebody or they broke up with you. On and on it goes. All the disappointments in life fit into this verse. God is working. He's accomplishing his will. And his promise is it is for your good, whether we can see it or not or believe it or not. We have to take him at his word to those who are called according to his purpose. So God works all things. So God, so really, 
providence is the outworking of God's sovereignty. That's what it is. Providence is the outworking and the evidence of God's sovereignty. Is God sovereign? Yes. Well, show me. Give me evidence. Well, I give you my testimony. My life. The providential circumstances that God worked together for my good is evidence of his sovereignty. That's providence. Number 10, creation was a one-time act. Providence is ongoing and continual. We talked about that last week. Creation was a one-time act. Everything was set in place. And then God says, this is how I'm going to operate from now through the rest of world history. Things will change come the millennium when he removes the curse. Things will change when the new heavens and new earth are created. So there will be a different set of circumstances. But for now, until then, God is operating through the same principles that he established during the creation week in addition to the curse that he put in place. And all things are operating according to those laws. And then every once in a while, his prerogative when he wants to, he intervenes with a miracle. Number 11. Well, in light of all this stuff we've said and definitions about providence, we should be able to identify providence, but also with the proper definition and understanding, discern what isn't providence. What are its counterfeits? What are pseudo ways that are used to supplant this idea of God's providence? There are many, and they're in every religion on planet Earth and worldview, ideology, and philosophy. And people live by these. So what are the count of the counterfeits of providence? Here are the most popular ones. Chance. If you believe in theistic evolution, Darwinian evolution, you don't believe in providence because providence is purposeful. It is directed by God. And yet, if you're a theistic evolutionist and reject that God exists, if you're an atheist, then you have nothing else to fall back on in terms of the circumstances of life. And the main thing that they believe in is chance. As a matter of fact, it's not just chance that runs and sustains the activities of the world moving towards the future, but they also believe that everything started by chance. And once upon a time, there was nothing, and then all of a sudden, nothing and chance got together, blew up, and now there's everything. And chance continues to perpetuate itself. What is chance? Here's a technical definition. Accidental and without design or purpose. That's chance. Accidental and without design or purpose. See, there's no goal. It's not going anywhere. There's no person who cares, who's intimately involved in your life or the world. It's chance. So that's in direct contrast to the Bible. Um, accidental and without design or purpose. A random, purposeless occurrence. What about another counterfeit? Well, luck. Luck. I remember when I was in seminary and there was a friend I had, and he graduated from seminary. He was on staff at the church there. And we were in line, and I just, for whatever reason, I said something about good luck or whatever. And he looked me in the face and was two inches away, and he said, there's no such thing as luck. You don't believe in the sovereignty of God, do you? You're not a five-point Calvinist. It's like, Whoa. What did I do wrong? You know, that's a true story, and I don't think I've said anything about luck since then. And then he proceeded to wax eloquent, explaining the theology of it, and he's right. There is no such thing as luck. What is luck? It is a force that brings good fortune by chance. See, there it is. No, there's nothing that happens by chance. Everything is by God's design, his purpose, his will. There is no such thing as luck. You don't need to rebuke somebody to their face publicly if they happen to say good luck. You can pull them aside in the corner and then chastise them there. I thought you were a Christian. Do you believe in God's sovereignty that is in control of all things? I mean, if you think about it from the biblical point of view, there is no such thing as luck. Even something as random as rolling. Dice. You ever play Yahtzee and you're rolling the dice, you know, 
Yahtzee. Oh, that was lucky. No, it wasn't. And it wasn't a miracle of God either. You know what that was? That was providence in terms of the dice are just operating 100% in keeping with the laws that God has already laid down for our universe. I mean, you could write out literally a mathematical and scientific equation to explain how you got five sixes because everything was based on where was the dice were situated in the can, the height from which you dropped them, the angle at which they were thrown, the velocity at which they were thrown, the angle at which they hit the table, uh, the, how soft or hard the table was, the weather that day in your living room, everything can be, can be where the dice were and how they were sitting inside the can when you rolled it. Really. So it's not chance, it's not luck. They're, the dice are up, the weight of the dice, there's different size dice. So it's all in keeping with God's ordained, laid down laws, gravity and everything else that's involved. Uh, another counterfeit. Um, I have a bunch. We'll just pick uh, one more. Uh, karma. What's that? Well, Hinduism, Buddhism, that's a worldview. They really believe it. What's karma? It's kind of the opposite of chance. Nothing we do matters, says chance. Karma says just the opposite. Everything we do matters. Everything we do matters determines the future. We determine the future. No, we don't. God determines the future. So providence is better understood in light of these worldviews in contrast with chance luck karma coincidence fate fatalism determinism magic and go on and on all those worldviews are debunked in light of scripture Uh, number 12 god's providence gives meaning to life God's providence gives meaning to life. If you believe in chance, uh, theistic, or I mean, atheistic Darwinian evolution, and you only operate according to chance, and there is no God, as those famous atheists would tell us, there is no meaning to life, and there's no, and they're honest about it, and they, they say that. There is no meaning to life. There's no ultimate purpose. Carl Sagan said that. There's no meaning to life. There's no purpose to life. It's all random. It's all chance. But we know what the Bible says. God's providence gives meaning to all of life, we know what that purpose and meaning is. He's he's working very intimately, personally, continually, powerfully, supernaturally for our good, for a purpose, for a goal, the glory of Christ, the good of you, the wooing of unbelievers, the conviction of the world, his kingdom to be put on full display. Only in light of God's providence does anything have meaning in this life. Number 13. Providence is illustrated in every book of the Bible. You just have to see it. Which takes us to 14. Here are some classic examples. There's just too many. Classic examples of providence in the Bible where it's like circumstances in life are happening through the choices and actions of people. Sometimes they're good. Many times those actions and choices are bad. And it's sad and it's unjust and it's depressing. All the while, God is working behind the scenes moving in a direction, accomplishing his perfect will in light of those horrible circumstances or just the choices of people day to day. Classic example, I can't go through it all, but Joseph chapter in Genesis 37 to 49 is the classic example of providence in the Bible where Joseph, the youngest, uh, there were 12 sons of Israel. He was number 11. His 10 older brothers hated his guts, hated, hated. I'm not exaggerating. Hated is repeated three times in Genesis. 
37. He's 17 years old. His dad loves him more than all the other sons. 17 years old. His, his dad says, hey, go check on your uh, older brothers and tell me how they're doing. And he goes and checks on how they're doing, and he, they're not doing well. And then Joseph comes back and tells his dad, yeah, and then he tattles on his older brothers. And Israel says, oh, that's unfortunate. And the ten older brothers realize that dad, Israel, loves Joseph more than the other ten. That's, you know, we'd say, oh, that's kind of partial uh, favoritism or whatever. But um, as a result, the ten brothers got upset. They were jealous of Joseph. And like I said, Scripture says that they hated their brother Joseph. So when he was 17 years of age, he went out to visit them again when they were pastoring or shepherding. And they saw him coming from a distance, the 10 brothers, and they made up a scheme and said, oh, here comes our younger brother, that tattletale, that snot, the one that dad favors. And it says they were jealous of him. Genesis 37. They were jealous of him and said, hey, let's get rid of him. Let's kill him and not tell dad and make up a story. And so then they debated about that. When they got there, they decided to beat him up and throw him into a pit, a dry well. And they did. They took his jacket that his dad gave him. They put animal blood on it. Then they decided not to kill him. And then some traders came by, some Ishmaelites and Midianites going down to Egypt. And so they sold Joseph to the slave traders. And then, then Joseph was taken down at age 17, the younger brother, to Egypt to, to be a slave. So he was enslaved in Egypt by an assistant to Pharaoh. And his name was Potiphar, the captain of the guard. And at a palatial mansion. And... He was sold to Potiphar, and he became Potiphar's slave, personal slave. But Joseph was such a godly young man, and God was blessing him. God's hand of favor was upon Joseph wherever he went, whatever he did, regardless of the circumstances. And so Potiphar said, hey, Joseph, you can be my servant in my house. And God blessed the house of Potiphar because of Joseph. That's providence. And then Potiphar had a wife, and she was evil. And she tried to hit on young, good-looking Joseph while her husband was gone. She was going to be unfaithful. She was going to commit immorality. And she kept teasing and flirting with Joseph. Come on. Come on, baby. That's the translation of the Hebrew. But anyway, <laughs> then it says in Genesis 39, on a strategic day when no one was around, verse 11, no witnesses. Oh, there was her opportunity. And she moved in on young Joseph. She grabbed him and said, lie with me. Joseph said, no way. And he ripped away and left his garment in her hand and he split the scene. And then later on, she lied about that. Long before the Me Too movement was Potiphar's wife. No one was around. And then when and then she starts screaming and she called to the men of her household and her servants Come in, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, to rape me. So I screamed. That was a lie. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. And so they're all riled up, the workers. And then the husband gets home, Potiphar, and she says the same thing to her husband. Then she spoke to him these words the hebrew slave joseph whom you brought into our house came into me to make sport of me and i raised my voice and i screamed and he left his garment out he wanted to rape me and it says that potiphar became enraged he believed the lying woman there were no witnesses he put joseph immediately in prison that's bad falsely accused 
bearing false witness. Now, Joseph is in prison. And listen to this. He gets thrown into the stocks, in the prison, in the dungeon. And it says, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to Joseph while in prison. And God gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. That is God's providence. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible. So here's the chief jailer. He's responsible to Potiphar, whoever he gets. He's supposed to be getting paid for his job. He's over all the prisoners. He's got to do all the dirty deeds down there in the dungeon. He entrusts all this to Joseph because he trusts Joseph. And the chief uh, jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge. He took a long extended coffee break. You know what? I'll just let Joseph do it. And he's still getting paid. But Joseph is faithful. And it says the Lord was with him, Joseph. And whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it to prosper even in a dungeon. That's the providence of God. These, that's not miracles. It's the providence of God. Have you ever been in prison for two years unjustly? Probably few of us here. So we don't have much to complain about. Some of us do, but very few of us do. And it, nevertheless, God is there. He is there for his people, caring for his people, sustaining them, providing for them every step of the way. So we know the story. Joseph is in prison for two years. And then finally, he meets the baker um, and the, the cupbearer, and he interprets their dreams in prison. He does it accurately. But he ends up rotting in this prison for two years. And then Pharaoh needs an interpretation of dreams. And so they heard about Joseph, who's in jail, who's now 19, at least maybe 20 years old. Could be more. And then Pharaoh says, hey, bring that guy out. And then he interprets Pharaoh's dreams accurately. And Pharaoh is just this this young man is relates to the gods. And so Pharaoh blesses Joseph and he entrusts virtually everything he owns to Joseph. And he says, you are now second in command. You're over my whole kingdom. You are over my house. Here's my ring that I rule with, my staff that I rule with, my chariot and my horse that I rule with. As a matter of fact, I will give you my daughter as your bride. Everyone will bow the knee to you. Here are vestments of royalty that you may wear a chain around your neck. So he was raised and elevated to second in power. And then it says he was 30 years old when the famine was about to start or when he rose to power, he's age 30. And he was the most influential and prominent man in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Joseph, when 17 years old, beat up, thrown into a pit and thrown into prison. Now, 30 years old. 13 years later, and look what God has done. Look where God has elevated and brought him. That is the providence of God. And then they have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine and two years into the years of famine. So now Joseph is nearing 40 years of age. He is the most prominent man in all of Egypt. He has all authority. He speaks for Pharaoh. And then his 10 older brothers who tried to kill him come down and visit and they try to get food in Egypt. And they meet up with Joseph. They think he's uh, an Egyptian. They don't know who he is. Joseph meets with them. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And then Joseph treats them harshly. He throws all 10 of them in prison for three days. And then he says, go get your other brother. Bring him here. And then they put and then he puts Simeon in jail until they come back. So they go back there and then they see their dad. And then they come back with Benjamin. And then Joseph is still not letting his brothers know who he is. And then finally, they have a meeting and Joseph can't take it any longer. And listen to this in Genesis 45, when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. 
He sees his brothers, he meets with them, and then finally he breaks down and he starts crying. He wept so loud that the Egyptians heard it from all around. And then Joseph privately calls his ten brothers to himself, and he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? So he reveals his identity. And then Joseph says to his brother, please come close to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. That's a rebuke. You did it. It was your choice. Human responsibility. Yet, here's the providence. Now, don't be grieved. Don't be afraid. Don't be sad. Why? Now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves through guilt because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. You did it. You did it unjustly. You did it out of wickedness and sin. Yet God is the one who sent me here. Now, Joseph can only say that because he's now speaking as a prophet of God. God gave him that insight. But it's still true. And then he goes on to say that God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. Again, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me Lord of Egypt. That's providence. Seeing the invisible hand of God in the worst circumstances of life. And then they rejoice. They love one another. They meet Israel. Then their dad dies. Now it's just the 12 sons. And then the 10 sons freak out and say, oh, our dad is gone. He won't protect us from Joseph. Joseph holding a grudge against us. Now he's going to try to kill us because he's so powerful. We need to fear him. And then we go to Genesis 50 where the story ends. And they go before Joseph. They plead for mercy. They fall down before him. Please don't hurt us. They were afraid. And Joseph said this. Genesis 50 verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for I am in. Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, brothers, but God meant it for good. That is providence. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present good result to preserve many people alive. Amazing. That is the providence of God. God cares for you just like that. Well, let's go on to a conclusion. Number the last one. And that is, well, what's our practical response to this doctrine of providence? Well, here's just a couple things to think about. And you've probably heard them already. Because God is sovereignly moving behind the scenes invisibly, and because God is infinite and almighty, our job is not to figure out, discern, and interpret what God is doing. Our job is to, here's the practical application, we're supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5. Walk by faith, not by sight. Don't stop and try to interpret all that God's doing. Oh, I wonder what God is doing now. How is providence fleshing itself out now? Ooh, how can I interpret this circumstances? How can I interpret this evil incident that just happened in my life and the suffering that I'm going through? Now you're thinking like Job and his friends who God judged and condemned and said, don't do that. The will of God, the ways of God, the work of God is inscrutable and beyond finding out, says Romans 11:33. It is not our responsibility to figure it out. Like the apostle said to Jesus, Jesus, now can you tell us the times and the seasons of what God is doing? And you know, Jesus said, no, it is not for you to know. Walk by faith, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Be preoccupied with what he has revealed, not preoccupied with what he hasn't revealed. Trust and obey. If you love me, you will obey me, said Jesus. Walk by faith. Don't try to seek out the infinite, almighty, unsearchable mind of God. That is not our responsibility. That's why I've never been a fan of those kind of comments where, oh, I wonder what God's trying to teach me now. I have no idea what God's trying to teach me now. 
I don't. I, don't. I could be wrong if I guess. You need to trust, walk by faith, and obey. Search the scriptures. Get wise counsel. Humbly go before him. Pray to God. Seek his will. Seek his wisdom through the word in your life. Ask him to preserve you, to sustain you. Rest on his promises. Know that he is working continually for your good, for his glory. And that will comfort your heart. Let's go to the Father. This amazing God that we can trust through all circumstances in light of his care for us. Father, we thank you for the treasure of your word, how it reveals everything that we need to know about you. God, help us to have the supernatural or the discipline from you and the Holy Spirit to exercise self-control, to not go beyond what is written in Scripture, to not seek after signs and miracles, to not seek after trying to discern your unfathomable will that you haven't revealed. For we know Scripture says that it is to your glory to conceal a matter. The secret things belong to the Lord. And we only need to be interested in what you have clearly revealed. Help us to that end. God, also, we need your help to walk by faith. That is hard to do. We can't do it on our own. So we need your Holy Spirit. We need the encouragement of the saints. We need to utilize the gift of prayer. We need the strength that comes from your word. Remind us continually of that. But God, we rejoice. We give you the glory for your love and care for us. And we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.